Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Last week we began a little mini-series, a three-part series through an overview of these churches. We spent uh, several months looking at each specific church in Revelation 2 and 3, the, the letters to these seven churches, and we spent a lot of time, sometimes two, two sermons in one letter, to try and understand the depth of what's going on in those letters. We, we went through expositionally, we went through to try and understand what Jesus is communicating to his churches, but we went so deep into them, so specifically um, pointed into them, that my fear is that we might have missed the entire tone of all of these seven letters put together. Uh, if you remember from last week, we talked about my son watching the, uh, the video on my wall from my projector of uh, Yosemite, of uh, El Capitan, the beautiful mountain range. And, and I said, look at how amazing it is. And he said, it's so amazing. Then he said, look at the little tiny billy goat that's right there that's nestled into the rock. I still don't even think it was a billy goat. It was just a little speck of dust on our wall. But he said, oh, look at the little billy goat. He was so focused on that little tiny speck that he missed the grandeur of the tone of everything that was being shown in that one slide. I think that we tend to struggle with that in our circles in evangelicalism. We dive so deeply that we forget what's the point of everything that's being said. So last week we began a little sermon series through the tones of these three, uh, the, these two chapters, these seven letters, the tones that we see, and we, we wanted to divide them into three specific tones. First, we looked at the criticisms that Christ gives to his church universally. We talked about four things that we do not want to exhibit in our own church. We want to fight against. We want to guard against because these are four things that through all of the seven letters, we kind of pulled out this tone of four things that Jesus absolutely hates in his churches. First was traditionalism or going through the motions, just nominal Christianity. Second was a sense of religious tolerance. Third was worldliness. And fourth was unfaithfulness to Christ. That was last week. This week, I want us to look at the commendations, not the condemnations, not the criticisms, but now what Jesus is looking for in his church, not what he criticizes in his church, but in these seven letters, what is it that Jesus says, that's what I want, that's what I see, that pleases me, that I love, and I want more of that? What are those things? Using my son as another example, which he just, he perfectly illustrates these points uh, without even trying to throughout the week. I tell my son every day I love him and I'm proud of him. I tell him this every day. I love him and I'm proud of him. I snuggle with him. I wrestle with him. I just smother him in hugs and kisses, and I tell him, I love you, son, and I'm proud of you. And sometimes he'll say to me, why are you proud of me? What did I do? And I'll say, it's not what you do. It's that you're my son. I want him to know my love for you does not change based off of what you do or don't do. So, Ethan being Ethan, and those of you who know Ethan, want to test that. So he said, what if I wrote on the wall? Would you still love me? And I said, it would make me sad, but I will always love you. I'll always love you. I'll always be proud of you. You're my son. I'll always love you. What if I break your car? I said, Ethan, how would you do that? I don't even know how you would do that, but Ethan, I'd be very sad, and there would probably be consequences, but I will always love you. The third one was most concerning to me. He said, 
what if I burn the house down? <laughs> and I said, are we talking purposefully or an accident here? Like, give me the scenario in which the house burns down and it's your fault. And he said, oh, no, 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 I would never do that on purpose. But what happens if there's an accident and I'm the reason the accident happened and the house burns down? And I said, well, I'd probably send you to go live with the Turners because <laughs> I'm done with you making messes. But I'll always love you. I'll always love you. I'm always going to be proud of you. There's nothing greater in the world for a son to hear than that his father is proud of him. I don't know about you men and how many times you heard that from your own father, that he's proud of you, that he loves you. It's not because of the things you do or because of the things that you don't do. He just loves you because you are his son. That's so important for us to communicate to our sons. I love you just because you're my son. You don't have to do anything, and I will always love you. I remember playing a baseball tournament when I was younger in Port Wainimi, and uh, I was up to bat. It was the last game. It was, it was literally the scenario that you dream for as a baseball player. It was the last game. This was for the championship. We had played over the course of two weekends, and this was for the championship. Whoever wins this wins it all. I was up at bat. I had been doing really well that year batting. Got up to, to bat. Bases are loaded. It means three runners are on. We are down by three points, three scores. If, we can, if I can hit a home run in this, uh, it's a walk-off, right? They talk about, I hit a home run, we win, we walk off. It's the bottom of the ninth. Full count, three balls, two strikes. That means the next pitch, if it's a strike, I'm going to strike out and lose the game for everybody. And, and if it's a ball, I'm going to walk and score a run for our team. And just it's, it's the situation that you want as a baseball player. And I remember stepping out of the batter's box, and the umpire said, man, this is fun. And I said, I can't wait to hit this ball. I can't, I'm going to hit a home run right over there. And he said, I'll take that bet. He said, how much you want to bet? A six-pack of soda from the, from the snack shack. And I said, make it a 12-pack. I'm, I'm going to hit that over the fence. I was so confident. And I stood in, and I think because of my confidence, the pitcher knew that, so he threw this change-up, which means the ball goes way slower than it normally does. And I swung, and we could probably have set a story by the time the ball actually hit the glove, right? I swing, strike out, we lose the game. The team is just... Uh, the, the opposing team is so excited, and they've won the championship, and I lost it for our team. And uh, I, I wore that pretty hard on my own shoulders because I lost the game. I started crying, so mad at myself. I had the game in my hands. I remember I walked over. I was so disappointed because I felt like I let my coach down. I felt like I let my team down, and I walked over, and in the dugout, the coach gives me a hug. says, it's okay, Patrick. You'll get the next one. This is uncharacteristic of you, and... Um, teammates, no worries, it's okay, we'll get the next one. I remember those were kind words, and I appreciated them saying that. But it was nothing compared to the words that my dad spoke to me as I walked out, because I thought I'd let everyone down, everyone in the stands, my friends, my family. He just came up and gave me a big hug, and he said, I love you and I'm proud of you. I love you and I'm proud of you. You hitting a home run would not make me any more proud of you. I love you, and I'm proud of you. And that was all I needed to hear. I could hold my head up high. 
Brothers and sisters, we want to and need to live life where we are pursuing, pleasing our Heavenly Father and living in light of Him saying, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of who you are. Now, we don't live to obey Him in order to receive those words, but knowing that He has given us that gracious commendation already, you are my son, you are my daughter, I'm well pleased in who you are and what you do, that should make us say, well, then I want to, to please you. I want to live to glorify you. I want to please you in what I'm doing. You can just write these verses down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to get to this in our Bible studies as we go through 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says in verse 1 that we should make it our aim to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And he says to the Thessalonians, you're doing that, just excel still more, keep doing that, but walk in a way where you're pleasing to God. Galatians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're not living to please men, but we're living to please God. We're living to make it our aim to please Him, but we don't ever do that. Please hear me very clearly right up front at the beginning of this sermon. We don't ever live to please God in order for Him to say, now I will love you. We don't ever live to please God in order for Him to say, now I will be proud of you. Now I will love you. It's not what we do that makes him come towards us in forgiveness, in grace, in mercy. If it was dependent upon us to get God to give us grace, then it's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. So as we talk about these aspects of what Jesus says, I want in my churches, we, we want to live these out. And we should be unashamedly pursuing pleasing the Lord but not with the motivation of saying, so that God will love me more. Please hear clearly, your Heavenly Father, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your Heavenly Father is standing over you, hugging you, saying, I love you and I'm proud of you. And just like my son, who would say, but what if I do this? Or just like me, failing to hit the grand slam and win the game, my dad says, that's not, that's not why I love you. That's not the reason why I'm going to give you love. I love you despite that. I love you for you. And God has graciously given us his love through Jesus Christ. So as we walk through these, I just want to set that guard over our hearts because we're all natural-born Pharisees. We're all natural-born legalists. We all want to say, pick me, pick me. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how I can commend myself to you. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how, how amazing I am in what I've done. And sometimes when we live out the, the, the pleasing aspect, right? I want to live to obey you, God. I want to pursue holiness. I want to pursue righteousness. Sometimes, and I think a lot of the times, we buy into, I want to do that so you will love me more. So let's right off the bat say, that's not why we're living to please God. We're living to please him because he's already given us the fullness of his love, not to earn any aspect of it. So let me pray to that end, and then we'll dive into the five different commendations that Jesus gives to his churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Father, thank you so much uh, for, for the grace you've given in Christ. We, we, we could end the sermon now with full hearts, knowing that you're standing over us saying, I love you and I'm proud of you. And just like my son says to me, and just like I would say to my dad, and just like so many of us say to you, but why? What have I done? And you would say exactly what I say to my son and what my dad said to me and what you say to us in your word. It's not by you. It's not because of you doing anything. It's because of my son doing all the work and you're clinging to him. 
You're trusting in him by faith. And even that faith to trust him is a gift. God, I pray that that would free us, even in light of preparing our hearts to partake of communion. Free us from a sense of needing to earn or deserve the gift that you've given. God, we just renounce that right now, renouncing self-reliance. We don't have the ability to please you in such a way that you would then forgive us or pick us or choose us or give us grace. That's not why we live to please you. So guard us from that, Father. But I pray this morning that though that may be a danger for us in talking about living holy lives, may it not keep us from talking about it. Your, your word is so clear. We need to pursue pleasing you. We need to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called, not to earn your favor, but because you've already given it to us. May your grace motivate radical obedience, radical God-fearing, God-pleasing actions in our lives. But may it be done with the guard over our souls. That's never for the purpose of earning your love. Jesus, you already earned the Father's love by perfectly obeying every command that he has given in thought, in attitude, in action, in deed. And so we cling to his perfect record of righteousness. We have no perfection of our own. And since you've graciously already given that to us, we want to live differently. So help us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches as the exhortation is given in every of the seven letters in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. May we have ears that would hear and hearts that would be ready to, to obey. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Five different commendations. This is what Jesus wants to see in his church. This is what he points to in these chapters and says, that's right, that's what I want to see. Number one, serving in love. Serving in love. Now again, we've already gone through all these verses, so if this is your first time here, uh, just please know this isn't the way we normally study the Bible together. We normally open it together, and we go line by line, verse by verse, through a uh, chapter, through a book. So we, we go through the section. Uh, since we've already done that together, we're going to go backwards and kind of look at it systematically and approach it uh, as a, a general tone. And uh, this is part two in a three-part sermon series on that. So serving in love. Serving in love. This is the first thing that Jesus says, that's what I love seeing in my churches. This is specifically seen in Thyatira. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. You remember, the angel of the church in Thyatira, right, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds. What are the deeds? That you have love and faith and you have service and perseverance. Remember, those two are pairs. Love and faith go together. Service and perseverance go together. The, the, the first two are uh, the, the foundation that lives out, the motivation that lives out the second two. So your love lives itself out in service. Your faith lives itself out in perseverance. It's very interesting that this church of all churches, that Thyatira, Jesus commends for their love that leads to service. They are struggling in almost every other department, almost every other area. They're really struggling. But in this area, man, they're doing really well. In this area, they are pursuing serving others in love. Ephesus was known, even though they had all their doctrine, uh, they were known for abandoning their first love. Thyatira, for all the love that they had, had tolerated false practices and false doctrine and began pursuing things that they should not have been pursuing. 
But Jesus says, one thing that I know that you have that I love about this church is that you have a love for each other that lives itself out in service. Lives itself out in service. That word service in verse 19, there's two different words in the Greek for the way that we serve each other. And you could kind of define them as this. One type of service is service under compulsion. You have to do this. No questions asked. And one type of service is voluntary. You have an, uh, an option. You have an opinion in the matter, whether you want to or, or don't want to. Typically, we'd split those out into two different Greek words. Doulos is a slave. You don't really have a say in the matter. You have to serve because you're a slave under compulsion. And then diakonos, which is a servant. That's the word here, service. You have an option. You have a say in the matter. You can choose to or not. Uh, choose to. You get the the choice. And here, the word diakonos is used. You serve each other out of love for each other, not under compulsion, but out of love. It's not forced slavery. It's voluntary service towards one another. That's what Jesus says, I want to see in my churches. I want to see serving in love, voluntarily meeting the needs of those around you. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, we are to put each other's interests before our own, right? We are to bow the knee to others' desires. We are to bend our will to others uh, in serving them. So just a, a couple questions for your own heart as we go pastorally through our own church. Do we serve in love? Would Jesus commend us as a church for our service to one another in love? Question one, would people characterize you as serving in love? Are you characterized by serving Are you characterized by serving in love? Notice those two have to go together, serving in love. There's a kind of service that doesn't have love inside of it, and there's a kind of love that doesn't have service inside of it. There's a kind of love that says, I know I can meet your need, but I'm not going to. It's a selfish love. And there's a kind of service that says, I'm doing this just to do it, not because I love you. That'd be a second question. What is your motivation for serving in love? Second question pastorally is, what is your motivation for serving in love? I would say that we have one of the most loving congregations that I've ever been a part of, and we have one of the most serving congregations that I've ever been a part of. But I think we need to ask the question, are those two motivating each other? Because we love each other, do we serve? And are we serving each other because we love each other? It can be very easy to go through motions of, this is just what we have to do. Instead of thinking through, why do we set up chairs in the morning? Why do we get here early and we go through the quote-unquote motions of setting up the church? Why do we do it? Is it because we have to? Or is it because we get to serve people that are coming in later? We get to serve people that are, are walking in. Why do we set up donuts? Why do we tear down? Why do we do everything that we do? Jesus would say, I want to see my bride serving, not out of compulsion, but because they love those around them. They love those around them. The second thing that Jesus commends his church for is not only serving in love, but suffering in peace. Suffering in peace. This is Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8. You remember uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. That word means to be crushed under the weight of something, being unable to stand up. The persecution is so strong in this city that it's crushing them like a a crushing weight on their shoulders. And they're poor, right? They're poverty, they're destitution. They're rich in Christ, but they're poor, not because of their laziness, but because of the persecution that they're going through. They're not allowed to participate in the economy. They're not allowed to, uh, to have a job, to own a home. 
They're similar to the people in Hebrews chapter 10, 11, and 12 who joyfully accept the seizure of their property because they know they have a lasting reward somewhere else. It's okay, you can take my property, you can take my house, you can take my land because I have a lasting reward somewhere else. And then Pergamum, the next uh, church in uh, the next section of Scripture in Revelation 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. You dwell in the midst of where Satan's throne is, but you're holding fast my name. You're not denying my faith, even in the days of Antipas, even in the days of severe persecution that killed this man, Antipas, that was one of the first martyrs in this city. These people are being destroyed, and yet they're suffering in peace. They're suffering in peace. How do you do that? How do you suffer in peace? How do you suffer without rising up to defend your rights, without rising up to defend what you have, to defend what you own? How do you suffer the way that these believers are suffering? I think the answer is you have to live with an eternal perspective. You have to live with an eternal perspective. And so that would be my first question to our hearts. If we are to suffer in peace, question number one is, do we live with a functional eternal perspective? Do we see that we're living for things that are different than what the world lives for? This goes back to what Jesus condemns his churches for, right? He condemns them for worldliness, not necessarily sinfulness, but living for what the world loves, living for what the world lives for, what the world desires. How do we suffer in peace? Well, we have to have a functional, eternal perspective. We can say like the church in Smyrna and like the believers in Pergamon, we can say, you can take what I have here on earth because it's nothing compared to what I already have in heaven. It's nothing compared to what I already have in heaven. And you can't touch what I have in heaven, right? Here, moth and rust, thieves break in and steal. Uh, it's destroyed. It's easily gone. It's temporary. If you place your, your hope and your uh, desires and your affections in money, for instance, or the stock market, this last week would have leveled you, right? Would have just wrecked you. If that's where your hope is, if your hope is in eternal rewards, moth and rust don't destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. No one can steal those treasures. So question number one is, do you live with a functional, eternal perspective? Do you see itself on a daily basis living itself out in you, not living for the things of this world? And secondly, are you prepared? Question number two, are you prepared for persecution? Are you prepared? Do you have a category in your mind for persecution? Do you have a, a worldview biblically that allows for persecution to come into our country? We don't have it yet, but I think that we would be very foolish looking at the political landscape around us to think that it isn't happening either in our generation or the next. It's, it's coming into our country. Our brothers and sisters around the world are already experiencing persecution even similar to what Smyrna was facing. And by God's grace, we've been in a country that, for the most part, has just allowed us to enjoy freedom, which has been a very huge blessing. It's also allowed a lot of traditionalism, right? A lot of nominal Christianity. And so persecution, when it comes to America, it will weed out nominal Christianity. But it will also test the faith of those who don't have a biblical worldview and a biblical lens of persecution. Remember Jesus' promise that we will have tribulation. So we need to suffer in peace. We need to, number one, serve in love. That's what these churches are commended for. And number two, they are commended for suffering in peace. Number three, the third commendation. Uh, they are commended for hating sin. They're commended for hating sin. This is back in the very beginning with the church in Ephesus. 
You remember verse 2 in chapter 2. I know your deeds. I know your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, but you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. You found them to be false. And then drop down to verse, uh, verse, chapter, uh, verse 5. When you have, uh, remembering from where you've fallen, repent, turn back, do the deeds that you did at first. So this is the condemnation. But verse six, I do have this for you. You have this going for you. I commend you for this. What is it? That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate their deeds. You hate their sin. Now remember the Nicolaitans, they were an antinomian group. They were a group that just threw off the law. We can live as Christians and do whatever we want. We don't have to repent. We don't have to turn from sin. We get to live in sin because Jesus died to forgive us of our sin. So they lived out a licentious lifestyle. And Jesus says, I love the fact that you hate those deeds. I commend you for hating them. Ephesus was intensely opposed to the Nicolaitans. Even in Sardis, there's a a commendation for not soiling their garments. There were some that that chose to say, I'm not going to live in sin. I'm going to fight against sin. Let's write down a couple verses. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord... Is also the beginning of wisdom. So to live out wisdom in godliness, it's to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate, declares the Lord. I don't like talking about words like hate in church, right? Are we called to hate things? The Bible would say absolutely, because God hates things. God hates sin. Some people say God Hates the sin, loves the sinner, and that's true. I understand that. But also, God hates the sin and hates the sinner because he throws sinners into hell. He doesn't throw sin into hell and keeps the sinner. He throws sinners, those who do wrongdoing, into hell. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. So it's not just the sin it's those who boast in their sin. It's those who live in their sin. Say, so this doesn't sound very Christian. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8 says, There is a time to love and there is a time to hate. There is a time for hatred, for holy hatred. This isn't hatred that turns into anger, that you just hurt people. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. When do we hate? When are we supposed to hate? I think the answer is when those who are loyal to Jesus as king and as master see him being dishonored. There should be hatred that rises up in our hearts to say sin is wrong and it killed my Savior. Jude verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who are doubting and then save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments that are polluted by the flesh. We should hate even the external sin that we see, much less the the sin that's inside of us at the attitude, at the will, at the thought level. So a question to ask our hearts is, do you hate sin? And it needs to start with us first and foremost. Pastorally, do you hate your own sin? Do you hate your sin? Do you have a visceral reaction against your sin when you see it? Do you say, man, I, I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't want to do this. Or do we just say, eh, no big deal, Jesus died for it. Do you hate sin? Do you hate the sin that's inside of you? And then do you hate the sin that you see around you? 
Does it cause you to react with action against the sin that you see in yourself? Does it cause you to react with doing something? Even as we talked about this morning in our Sunday school time, radical amputation, radically dealing with sin. You cannot love and live in the very thing that Jesus died to free you from. So do you hate your sin? And then do you hate the sin that you see in others? And in humility, you go to them with compassion. You go to them and you, and you encourage them in godliness. You won't do that if you fear man. That's not a fun thing to do. But you will if you fear God and you love those around you. Go in, in compassion. Go in grace. Do you, in humility, bring others into your life to say, show me where my sin is? Because I'm, I'm blind to it. I need help. The bottom line is holiness for a believer is not optional. Holiness is not optional. And it starts with the leadership of the church. One writer says it this way, if a church's leaders fail in a matter of personal holiness, the church itself is discredited. No matter how orthodox its confession of faith, no matter how strongly we call for truth and righteousness, if our leaders' lives don't back it up, many will reject their teachings as hypocritical or simply conclude that genuine holiness is optional. But it's not. Brothers and sisters, you have an enemy. Peter tells us you have an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking those that he can devour. You have an enemy who hates you. Satan is currently at this moment looking to devour you any way that he can. And if you don't think that you are already on Satan's menu, then you're deceived. And Jesus would say, wake up and begin to hate the sin that's around you and hate the sin that's inside of you, knowing that Satan wants to use it to destroy you. Hating sin. So we have serving in love, suffering in peace, hating sin. Number four, rebuking error. Rebuking error. Jesus commends his churches for rebuking the error that's around them. This is that godly intolerance that we were talking about. They don't tolerate the, the false teaching and the error that's around them. This is Ephesus, this is Smyrna, and this is Philadelphia. Remember Ephesus, as we already read, they did not tolerate evil men. That's not only false teaching, but that's dangerous uselessness, as we talked about it way back a couple months ago when we first began this series through these churches. One commentator says, these false teachers were good for nothing in regard for things in which they ought to excel as good. In other places, this word speaks of a cowardly soldier or a lazy student. So here it's referring to a professing Christian who doesn't live up to proper standards. This is somebody who professes to be a Christian, but is living a false teacher's lifestyle. And they, they wouldn't stand for that. They rebuked the error around them. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Philadelphia were intolerant of false teaching. They were intolerant of those things. Sardis and Laodicea, on the other hand, were indifferent. Mm, let it go, take it or leave it, doesn't matter. Pergamum was tolerant of those things. It can exist in our city and in our church, and we're okay. And Thyatira accepted it and affirmed it. Let's let the false teaching continue. We need to rebuke error. So one pastoral question we need to ask our hearts with regard to rebuking error is, do you have enough discernment, biblical discernment, to spot error? Do you have enough biblical discernment to spot error, to see it? Do you have a grid that you filter everything through to be able to test it? This is what we're commanded to do in 1 Thessalonians 5. We need to test Everything that we're hearing according to the word of God. This is what Acts chapter 17, Paul commends the Bereans for doing. 
Paul preaches to the Bereans. The Bereans say, thank you so much for your message, Paul, but we're not sure that it was entirely correct. And Paul does not say, how dare you say that of an apostle? Paul says, good job. Go take it to the word of God. Go take it to the word of God. Go test it according to the scriptures. Do you have a grid that is filled with biblical discernment? Do you read the Bible to grow that grid, to understand error? And do you know, going back even to the third point of hating sin, do you know that you have an enemy who wants to lure you away with false teaching? He wants to lure you away. Just the slightest little aspect of Christian doctrine that just gets skewed just a tiny little bit. I don't think anybody in this church is going to walk outside these walls and hear somebody say, hey, you should worship Satan. And you'll think, man, I've gotten this all wrong. Let's start joining the worship Satan group. That's not how the false teachers are going to get us. It's just a little bit. It's something that's just, it sounds almost right. We're going to study some of these things even, I believe, next week in our Sunday school with the way that cults operate. They use the same language that we use and they just tweak it just a tiny little bit. Yeah, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but grace and faith have different terms, different definitions, different ways to define things. And you have to do something. Maybe it's even a God-given thing that you are required to do in the Bible, like be baptized. But if you're not baptized, you can't be saved. And just this little tiny aspect that's off and you hear it and you go, "Mm, I don't know. We need to have biblical discernment to say, no, I know the gospel. I know that the gospel clearly teaches that Jesus does the saving work alone. I don't add anything to it. Not even my good works can save me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We need to be able to rebuke error. We need to be able to do it in love. And I love how our our brother Marty talked about it this morning. If you see somebody who is in error, don't be mean-spirited about it. Go with compassion and grace and love in your heart towards them. At the same time, it shouldn't be an option for us not to go, not to talk. It would be an unloving thing for a doctor who has run scans and tests on your body and knows that you have cancer. It would be an unloving thing for that doctor to say, you know what, this is hard news. I don't want to say it. I'm just going to keep this to myself. And Today's appointment, I'm just going to tell you, you're doing great, and you have a full, clean bill of health. That would be unloving. It's a loving thing to say, there's a disease, there's a sickness, and it will kill you. Please turn. Please repent. Jesus says, I commend my churches for knowing what error is and rebuking it, calling people to turn to the truth. Plead with them. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. We, we should never be beyond uh, begging people to, to follow Jesus, right? We beg you, we plead with you, be reconciled to Christ. Rebuke error. Fifthly and finally, the final commendation that Jesus gives, not only serving in love, suffering in peace, hating sin, rebuking error, but fifth and finally, persevering in faith. This is really where all of these other four lead to. We need to serve in love and not stop doing that. We need to uh, suffer well and not stop doing that. We need to hate our sin and not stop doing that. We need to rebuke error around us and not stop doing that. And we need to then persevere in the faith that God has given to us. Persevere in faith. This is really the transcendent emphasis of the entire book of Revelation, but you can clearly see it in these seven churches with Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. And also Philadelphia. Philadelphia is encouraged and uh, commended by Jesus for persevering in their faith. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 
2 and 3. Jesus says to Ephesus first, I know your deeds, I know your toil, your work, your toil. That's the work in Greek, laboring to the point of utter exhaustion. And your perseverance, you're not tolerating evil men, but you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, but they're not. You found them to be false. You're working hard to rebuke error, and you see them to be false. And you've persevered and endured for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. They're commended for that. Philadelphia, turn to uh, chapter 3. Philadelphia in verse 8 of chapter 3. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power. You've kept my word. I have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them to come and to bow down at your feet. I will make them to know that I have loved you because you've kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Pergamum, even though they had satanic dominance in their city, Satan's own throne is in the midst of their city. Jesus commends them for their perseverance. They keep the word of Christ and they don't give up. They labor, they work hard. That word labor is working to the point of exhaustion and sweating, toil working to the point where you have no energy left. Do we really work this hard? Uh, One pastoral question that we need to ask our hearts with regard to persevering in faith is, do we toil? Do we work to the point of exhaustion? Do we work to the place where we've got nothing left in our tank spiritually and we need Jesus to fill us up? And again, I know the answer to that for many of you is a resounding yes that Jesus would commend you for. Because I know that so many of you are working and toiling and laboring and striving to please God in the way that you're obeying Him by serving others. But normally when we say, man, I'm exhausted, we're not really. We're just more tired than normal because we're doing more than we normally do. Could it be that we don't feel and sense and know the peace that surpasses all understanding because we rarely do anything that would warrant it? Is it possible that we don't understand the peace that God promises to give us because we really don't do much that would warrant that peace being needed? The words that we long to hear from Jesus are, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the rest of your master. Now you can rest. We shouldn't be resting now. We should rest then. We should toil, we should labor, we should strive. So five different commendations that Jesus gives to his church. He says, what I love seeing in my church is that they serve in love. I love seeing them serving. Again, not under compulsion, but because they love each other. I love seeing them suffer in peace. Not worrying, not anxious, not wondering what's going on, but suffering in peace knowing that here we have no lasting city, right? Here we have no lasting treasure. We're waiting for the city that is to come. Jesus commends his church for hating sin, not taking sin lightly, not playing around with sin, not coddling sin, but fighting it and hating it. Jesus commends his church for rebuking error, not allowing it to exist, but when they see it, rebuking it and saying, that's not according to the gospel, that's not according to the word of God, that's not according to orthodox doctrine. And in order to be able to do that, you must understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus commends his church for persevering in all of these things, but persevering in faith. So, 
as we wrap up the commendations, I, just, I have a couple different application points for us in order to live these things out in our own church. Again, as we looked last week at the criticisms that Jesus gives to these seven churches, we asked some hard questions of our own hearts to say, are we struggling in these areas? Where do we struggle? In, the, in the, just the root of these areas. Brothers and sisters, I can say, I think our church is doing really well in all of these five commendations. I think our church is. From what I can see, I think our church is doing really well. How do we continue to do well? How do we, as Paul says to first, the uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, how do, how do we excel still more and not give up? I think we do a couple of different things. Number one, we work hard enough that we come to the end of our own strength. Work hard enough that you come to the end of your own strength. Don't operate on your own strength. Don't operate in your own capacity. Go beyond what you can do. Work hard. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, speak according to the power of God that works through you. Speak and serve according to the service and the power that God gives you to do. We shouldn't be serving one another on our own strength. We should be doing it on the, uh, under the power that God has given for us to do it in. So work hard enough that you come to the end of your own strength. Uh, some people say, we need to be careful of burning out. You need to be careful of burnout. I, I, I personally think burnout just happens when you have an expectation that isn't met and it just lets you down. I think that's what burnout, where burnout really comes from. Where you just have an expectation and you're working as hard as you can to meet that expectation and then when it doesn't happen, you say, all of my work was for nothing. I think that's where burnout usually happens. And I think we have to be careful even of our expectations. I think expectations in personal relationships are just planned resentment. You expect something from somebody and they don't give it to you, you're going to resent them. So don't have those expectations. That's just, if you have expectations, you're planning on resenting people. And I also think if you have expectations for the ways that you're going to see our church work, our church interact, our church grow or not, our church uh, facilitate the gifts that God has given to us, we just... We're going to have a, a burnout phase to our church. So we don't burn out only by what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. We proclaim Christ, we admonish every man, we teach every man, and we work hard, striving, agonizing, right? That Greek word in that passage, agonizomai. I'm agonizing in my labors and my efforts. But then he said, not according to my power, but according to the power of him who works mightily through us. Brothers and sisters, God will never burn out. So if you're working on the power that God gives you, you can never burn out either. Work hard enough that you come to the end of your own strength. Question or second point in application, serve often enough that it becomes the habitual pattern of your life. Serve often enough that it becomes the habitual pattern of your life. If these churches are commended for their service and love to one another, then we need to serve in such a way that it becomes the habitual pattern of our lives. Can I just say something that would seem pretty obvious from the outset? You cannot serve the people in this church if you're not at this church. If you stay home on a Sunday morning, you have no one to serve. You need to be here with the people of God in order to serve them and be served by them. So if the body gathers, you're there. Why wouldn't you want to be there? Where would you be? Where else would you be? You'd gladly give whatever you have on your agenda away to be with the people of God and to serve and to love them. You're giving 
You're giving with your time, your money. You see a need, you meet the need. Matthew chapter 6, you can write a couple of these verses down. Matthew chapter 6, verse, 20, or verse 2 through 4. When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. Your heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But we're giving. And again, brothers and sisters, we are a giving church. We are a generous church. Let's excel still more. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21. Proverbs 14, verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. If you have the means to give, you give. But it's got to be a pattern. So let's continue to foster a pattern of serving each other in love in our church. Number three, a third point of application. Hate sin more than you, you love your own comfort. Hate sin more than you love your own comfort. Do you love holiness more than you love your own flesh? Do you love holiness more than you love the fear of man? Again, you're not going to go to somebody and confront them compassionately and graciously in love. You're not going to do that if you're fearful of mankind. If you're afraid of man around you, if you want to please man more than you want to please God, you're not going to stick your neck out there in a very awkward situation and say, brother, sister, I think you're in error. And I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to turn and repent and follow Christ. What stops us from rebuking people around us? I believe it's having a greater fear of man than we have a fear of sin. So we need to cut out whatever causes us to sin. We need to encourage others to do the same thing. We need to pursue holiness. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows go into a fool. We want one rebuke to go deep because we're humble and gracious and receiving the constructive criticism. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 5, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. It's good to listen to a wise person's rebuke. So we need to hate the sin that's inside of us more than we love our own comfort. And we need to encourage others to do the same. Point number four in application, scrutinize teachers according to the scriptures scrutinize teachers according to the scriptures. Uh, me, first and foremost, if I, am, if I am one of the louder voices in your life preaching the word of God to you, then you need to scrutinize everything that I'm saying and take it to scripture. If you don't understand something that I'm saying or you have a question about something that I'm saying, take it to me, take it to the scriptures, let's study together, but just don't take my word for it. You've got to go back to the Bible. Anybody who preaches in this pulpit, it's the exact same thing. Search the scriptures. And as sheep who follow our good shepherd, we need to protect other sheep. We need to be protective of our flock. We can't let error into our flock. We don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to worry about it entering. We need to be concerned that it would take others away. And so we need to guard others, again, who don't have that biblical discernment, that biblical worldview. So protect. Don't let false teaching come in. Can I just say practically, can I encourage the men in the room right now, especially if you are uh, currently a, a dad, I think that we allow error and false teaching to enter into our household all the time through movies and television and music and the books that we allow our kids to read. We, we need to be on guard for the error that's happening around us. And until our kids have a biblical worldview that can discern that for themselves, 
We need to be the shepherds that guard our other sheep that are in our houses. So scrutinize teachers according to the scriptures. Be Bereans. Protect your heart. Protect your mind. Protect your families. Scrutinize everything around you according to this book. And finally, number five. Live in such a way that you are a slave who pleases their master. Live in such a way that you are a slave who pleases their master. And this takes us all the way back to the beginning of our time in God's word this morning. We are not seeking to please Jesus so that he will love us more. We're seeking to please the one who has already given us all of the love that he could possibly lavish upon us. So we should forego the rights that we feel we have. We should put others' interests ahead of our own. We should live to serve others and to please Christ. Turn to 2 Timothy, just really quickly as we wrap up our time. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says in verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What does it look like to be a good soldier? Verse 4, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the everyday affair of life. So, why? Why doesn't he entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life? Because he wants to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He wants to please the one who enlisted. Notice what Paul is saying. You don't please your officer in order to be enlisted, right? God isn't looking going, who's going to please me and then I'll pick them to be on my team. No, you're already enlisted because Jesus in his grace saved you. And so you are called to please the one who called you to himself. You don't please Jesus to get enlisted. You please him because he's already enlisted you. You could write down Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and all understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, pleasing him in every respect, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We want to be pleasing to him. Again, not to earn his love, but because he's already given it. Not to gain grace, but because he's already lavished it. Not to earn mercy, but because he's already given it. We, but we want to be pleasing. If you're anything like me, you look at that and you go, I want to please you, Lord, but I fail every day. I fail every day in pleasing Jesus. So how do we reconcile what the Bible says about we want to please you, and I'm not doing that as a pattern. I keep failing. How do we succeed? How are we ever to gain victory? You remember what the father said over his son multiple times when he was on the earth? At the baptism, at the transfiguration, and on Tuesday right before, uh, Tuesday of Passion Week right before he was crucified. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son, and I love everything he does, and he pleases me in everything he does. So how do we look at the commands in the Scripture and say, I want to live in a way that pleases God, and then we look at our experience and we say, I'm failing constantly. We say, God, help. What am I to do? Brothers and sisters, what we are to do is cling to Christ so that as we wear his righteousness, as we wear his perfection, 
The Father would say to you, as he sees you wearing the perfection of Jesus, the Father would say, oh, you are my beloved son or daughter. Everything you do pleases me. We look and we go, I'm constantly failing, and God says, everything you do pleases me. Not because of anything that we could offer him. God says those words over us this morning, if we are in Christ. That's why we take communion. Communion not only symbolizes something great, but it actually is something great. It's not mystical. There's nothing uh, mystical in these elements that we partake of together. But it is actual nourishment that Jesus gives to us because he reminds us through these elements that his body is being offered for us. He says, I'll take the penalty for you. I'll be crucified for you. I'll take your penalty. And his blood is being poured out for the cleansing of our sins. So to those who came into this room who are wearied by a tough week at home, who have been crushed at work, whose conscience just never seems to let them forget a specific sin that they've done. This supper is here to communicate Jesus to our hearts that he forgives us and he loves us and he offers us unconditional pardon in Christ. This is a reminder to God's people that we are always and everywhere and forever a forgiven people. That's what these elements are for. So we say, God, we want to live to please you, but these elements tell us not to earn your favor, but because you have graciously given us yourself. You've enlisted us. Now we want to live in light of that grace. Father, thank you so much for the commendations in these letters. Thank you that we were able to study these as a church and walk through them um, so in depth together and now just kind of be reminded of what they're saying. God, thank you for Christ Bible Church, the grace that you've given to make us a church that I believe lives out these five commendations. Father, I pray that we would excel still more. And God, now I pray that you would guard our hearts from self-righteousness. As we long to please you, we want to make sure that we are pleasing to you as a way of just saying thank you, as a way of living in light of grace, but never to earn grace, never to earn mercy, never to earn forgiveness. That would undo the gospel entirely. So God, enable us now to glory in our utter helplessness. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins and had no way of making ourselves alive, but God, being rich in mercy with which he loved us in Christ, made us alive. Father, I pray as we contemplate partaking of the Lord's Supper now, that you would encourage our hearts And as we confirm these truths to our souls through song, encourage us that Jesus is ours forevermore, not because of what we could do, but because of who he is and because of what he has already done and promises to do for us. We pray it in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men if they would come and pass out these communion elements. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, This morning, these elements are for you. Let's hold them. Uh, Don't take them. We'll take them together as a church family.
but grab them and just be encouraged by the fact that Jesus yet again is offering himself as a reminder this morning through the Lord's Supper that he has made the way for you to be forgiven, for you to be loved. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ or you don't know what would happen if today were to be the day that you were to die and stand before God and you don't know what you would say, you don't know if you would be accepted into heaven on the basis of Christ, you don't know if he is Lord and Savior in your life, first of all, I would just plead with you, don't leave until you do know that. Lunch can wait. Eternity is quickly approaching. But second, I would encourage you to just let these elements pass you by. Therefore, believers to celebrate Christ. But don't leave until you've talked with one of us about knowing salvation and freedom from sin and pardon and knowing the work of Christ in your life.
Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is ours forevermore. This is a blessed reminder of that truth. That's why we partake of communion. Every month when we spend time at the Lord's table, partaking of communion together, we are reminding each other and preaching to our own souls as we sing, come rejoice now. This is not a time to be sulking in our sin. This is not a time uh, to, to look inward and think, I've got, I've got nothing to commend me to Jesus. This is a time to look to Christ and to say, Jesus, you've paid it all. You've paid it all. Therefore, all to you we owe. We want to please you because you've given us everything that there is. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And Paul said, as often as we take this together, we need to do it remembering Christ. Let's remember that he made the way for us to be saved by taking our punishment in his body and being crushed on our behalf. Let's partake together. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. That new covenant is a beautiful covenant. Ezekiel 36 tells us, that the new covenant was that God, through his Holy Spirit, would give us a heart of flesh that beats for him and loves to obey his commandments. We have a heart of stone as unbelievers that does not love Christ. And he says, through my work on the cross, I'm going to give you a new heart that beats for me, that longs to please me. So he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for the sins of many He told us to do it in remembrance of him. And then Paul says, as often as we do it, we do it remembering his death and preaching of his resurrection and proclaiming that he is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. And as Paul says, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find righteousness lived out by those who claim his name? Let's remember Christ together that he died to cleanse us from sin and wash our hearts as white as snow. Let's partake together. Let's just sing. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for us in our place. In our place condemned, you stood and you sealed our pardon with your blood. So we proclaim hallelujah. What a savior. God, may we live to please you in freedom and forgiveness, pleasing you in every respect, not to earn your love, but because you've graciously given us forgiveness and freedom. And if the son has set you free, you're free indeed. God, enable us today to live as free men and women, adopted sons and daughters, of the Most High God. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's Day. If I can ask the parents to go grab your children really quick because I know we went over time. Enjoy fellowship together and we'll see you Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for Bible study. God bless.